All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get going today. Apologize, we've been running a little behind schedule. Um, but we will be continuing in our uh, study in the book, Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom by G.K. Beale. And today we are in chapter 3, which is titled, The Irony of Salvation. Now, I'll admit when I first heard of the name of the book that we were going to be studying, um, my first reaction was, oh, that sounds awesome. And then right after that was, what is this about? <laughs> it's a, quite the mouthful, the title of the book. Um, and uh, it really is a great study, but admittedly, I didn't know initially, you know, what we were going to be covering, what would we be learning. Um, but it's been really beneficial to me so far. I'm sure, uh, you know, for anyone who's been following along, it's helped you as well. Uh, Beal's been doing a great job of helping us to, you know, as we've been doing, take a, a look at Scripture from a little bit different angle than what we may have done in the past, looking at it particularly from the angle of uh, irony, you know, identifying all of these ironies that we see in Scripture um, and uh, seeing that God actually deals ironically often with his creation. Now, I will also admit that I was glad to hear Pastor Fry whenever he did his first lecture on this series, um, on the introduction and the first part of the first chapter of the book, I was thankful to hear him say that he's always struggled to properly understand what irony is, because I also have always struggled to really understand what is irony. You know, how is it different from hypocrisy, for example? Like, how, how do you truly define irony? Um, and Buell provides us with a basic definition of that, right? He, he reminds us, you know, the basic definition of irony is the saying of something or the doing of something that implies its opposite. And as we've walked through the first couple chapters of the book, Beals provided us with numerous examples that as we kind of walk through example after example, I think it's made it easier to understand or it's helped educate us on what ironies are and how to pick them out of a narrative or a story or any, anywhere else in life where they might pop up. And so and I think this has been really helpful. Certainly for me, I feel like I'm getting a lot better understanding of ironies, and I'm getting better at picking them out when I see them. Um, as some of you know, we live north uh, of here, kind of towards Conroe, and so I spend a lot of time driving on I-45 North, way more than I would ever... Uh, want to, but that's just part of my daily commute and also, you know, driving home from church. And um, I was driving on I-45 North the other day going through the woodlands and happened to notice a billboard that I, I think is fairly recent. I don't remember seeing it before, but it, uh, it advertised dating for busy professionals. And under that, it had a web address that you could follow that was called It's Just Lunch houston.com or .org or something like that. And I was so proud of myself because I said, ah, there's an irony right there, you know, because that's exactly, you know, an example of a verbal irony, right? Saying one thing and meaning the opposite. The organization, I presume, is called It's Just Lunch, when in reality, 
it's not just lunch, right? The whole point is that it's, it's a date. It's, they're a dating service setting you up on a date. It's, it's not just lunch. But they say it's just lunch because everybody reads that and, and understands what they're getting at, right? It's an irony. So this is a, um, a form of communication that we use on a daily basis. But, you know, if you're like me, you probably just haven't always clued in on it because maybe you haven't studied it a lot, so you don't pick it up when you see it. I think going through Beale's book here uh, hopefully will help all of us get better at spotting ironies, and particularly it will help us spot ironies in Scripture, because what Beale's shown us is that there's ironies everywhere in Scripture. Um, God uses irony all the time, Uh, and when you start you know, as you get better at picking them out, you start to see them. Uh, so that's been really cool as we've gone through our study to to see these more obviously. Um, just quickly going back through a few of the basics, you know, um, that example I gave, that's an example of verbal irony. Um, Beale also gave us a couple of different types of irony. That There's three different ones that fall under the category of literary irony. You've got that verbal irony where you say one thing, but you really mean the opposite. Then you've got dramatic irony is where a story or a narrative seems to be heading in one direction for the longest time, and then all of a sudden it turns out it's going in the opposite direction. Or you also have character irony, where a character in a story appears to be one thing and then turns out to be the complete opposite thing. Right. So we could probably think of stories we know of where we've seen this happen. Um, you know, I try to follow the news from time to time to keep up with current events. But if you follow political news, you will find ironies everywhere, you know, things flipping back and forth around, and certainly character irony, people appearing to be one way and turning out to be a different way, right? So um, Beale here is giving us the tools to better understand these things. But, you know, as I've said, he's applying it to Scripture. And so... Beale also gives us a couple of categories that are specific to ironies that we're looking at in Scripture. He's given us retributive irony and redemptive irony. And so if you recall from the first couple of chapters, we looked at the negative side of irony, which was retributive irony, which essentially shows that God often punishes people in a way that's consistent with their particular sin that they're guilty of. And we've looked at a lot of examples of that in the first couple of chapters. Now in chapter 3 and going through the remainder of the book, we're going to flip over and look at the positive side, that redemptive irony, which Beale defines as being, he says, God's people appear to be cursed, but are actually blessed. (coughs) Excuse me. They're actually blessed as they persevere in faith. And so we see a lot of examples where it appears that God's people are going to be cursed, and then it turns out that they're blessed. Um, so that's just sort of a scene set, and now we'll go to um, looking through these examples uh, that Beale has given us in chapter 3, where he's particularly focused on ironies that are associated with salvation. So, And as we go through the future chapters, he'll change his focus to different things, but today it's salvation. How has God saved his people in ironic ways. So let's go ahead and walk through the ones that Bill has given us, and I'm going to move fairly quickly through it uh, just to stay within our time. Um, but Bill 
does a, a great job just laying this stuff out in the book. If you've got any questions or want to talk about it further, I'd be happy to uh, later. But the first irony that we'll look at, uh, that Buell's given us, is that the curses of the fall reverse the blessings of creation, and then the blessings of redemption reverse the curses of the fall. So again, remember that redemptive reversals, you know, part of the title of the book. We see these reversals, these ironies. So let's go ahead and look at those. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Starting with creation, uh, when we look at God's creation of the earth and his creation of Adam and Eve and the roles that he gave them, we see a number of ironies in the original roles they were given versus what happened in the fall. So first, let's talk about the roles they were given. And again, we've gone through this in a lot of detail previously, even in our last Sunday School series. So I won't hit every point, but I'll focus on sort of the roles where Beale is focused, where he's drawing out these ironies. So Adam was given the role of filling, subduing, and ruling over the earth. Essentially, he was given the role of a king over God's creation, over God's dominion that he'd given to Adam. Adam also was the function as a priest. He was set in the Garden of Eden, and his job was to uh, work and to keep the garden, right? And we've talked about those terms being interchangeable with ministering and protecting the garden. So he was functioning essentially the way that the priests were functioning in the temple. He was to minister there, but he was also supposed to uh, keep guard over it. It was Adam's job to discern between good and evil, and where evil was apparent, to expel that from the garden, to keep God's garden pure. And then he was also set up as the head of his wife and his family. Um, He was to mediate God's word to Eve, and he was to lead her in righteousness. Eve was made as a helper for Adam in all these tasks. She was to come alongside Adam and help him with all of the roles he'd been given. And she was also, uh, could be referred to as a minister of life. One of the things she was going to do was to help Adam bring life into the world, to fill and subdue the earth, right? So that God's image would spread over all the earth to his glory. Well, now let's look at what happens in the fall when Adam and Eve sin against God, when they disobey his commandment to not eat from the tree, or from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Since Adam failed in his role to subdue and rule over the earth, and he submitted to the serpent's temptation, in effect, Adam was now subdued by and ruled over by the serpent. And further to that, he was subdued by the earth, right? Now he has to work by the sweat of his brow. Now he's dependent on whatever the earth will bring forward or bring forth for him. Um, He's not ruling over the earth. He's subdued by it. Um, You know, he's he's completely dependent on what the earth will bring forward and what God will provide. Um, Adam, since he failed in his job to uh, discern between good and evil, to judge the serpent, to call the serpent out as being evil and to expel the serpent from the garden, well, since he failed to judge the serpent, now Adam, in effect, is judged for his sin. And also, because he failed to expel the serpent from the garden, Adam is now expelled from the garden, Adam and Eve both. So you can see these ironies, right? These, these ways in which the curses that fell upon Adam and Eve uh, were resemblant of those uh, 
roles they'd been given, the blessings they'd been given in creation. Uh, also, since he failed to lead his wife, now his wife is cursed with a desire to lead and to rule over him, which is going to create enmity between the two of them. So again, his, you know, his failure, uh, he's, he and his wife are cursed in accord with what they failed to do. And then Eve, for her part, she was meant to help Adam bring life into the world, but as a result of their sin, she helped him to bring death into the world, the curse of death. But, of course, as we know, that's not the end of the story, right? That's not how we finish up in Genesis chapter 3, because we're also given hope in Genesis chapter 3. And when we look at the hope that's given in that promise of an offspring of the woman who was to come, who would bruise the head of the serpent, we see that even these curses are also going to be reversed in the redemption of God's people. What we see is that Adam's curse of death is accompanied by the promise of the blessing of life that would come through this uh, seed of the woman or offspring of the woman. So we know this was a prophecy of, uh, of Jesus Christ, that he would eventually come and defeat Satan and that he would um, grant eternal life to all of his people. So we see that even in the curse, there's still this blessing that's provided by God. God is gracious. And then we also see that that promised seed, Jesus Christ, ultimately will fulfill the roles that Adam was supposed to fulfill in the first place of prophet, priest, king. So Jesus, you know, ultimately comes and fulfills those roles. And then also, for Eve's part, even though she was originally supposed to be helping Adam bring life into the world, she failed, she, uh, they sinned, and she helped Adam bring death into the world. But God has still blessed her by telling her that she will ultimately bring life into the world through this promised offspring who will come, this offspring of the woman. So you, you see sort of a double reversal or double irony in that Adam and Eve failed to fulfill their roles in creation. They're cursed in accordance with the way they failed, but then they're also given this promised hope, this blessing that also is in accordance with their failures and the original roles they were meant to keep. And so that brings us to our next irony, which is where the first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeded, right? The last Adam being Jesus Christ. So Beale next points out that Adam was a type of Christ. In other words, Adam was a, a similar but inferior version of the Son of Man who was to come. And he pointed to the greater reality of that offspring of the woman who would ultimately come to crush the head of the serpent and give life to his people. But we don't have to take Beale's word for that. Paul says it right in Romans chapter 5. If we look at verse 14 of chapter 5 in Romans, you know, in that passage where Paul lays out this doctrine, um, Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Right? Paul is telling us that, Jesus, that Adam was a type of Jesus. Um, and it's from this passage uh, in Romans that we derive our understanding of federal headship, right, which we've talked about um, 
You know, when we look at that doctrine of federal headship, we see that not only was Adam a type of Christ in the roles that he was originally meant to fulfill, but also in the ways that he failed to fulfill those roles, Christ then succeeds. And so we see even Adam's failures being a type of Christ's successes, Adam's disobedience being a type of Christ's obedience. That's a point that Beale makes in the book. And so if we look at that, um, you know, we see that, you know, we can compare and contrast the first Adam and the last Adam, Adam versus Jesus Christ. Um, When we look at their federal headship, who was under the federal headship of Adam? All men, right? All who are descended from Adam. When we look at Jesus Christ, who's under his headship? God's elect, those who are in Christ, those who've been blessed with repentance and faith. Then when we compare the two, how did they relate to God's law? Adam obviously transgressed God's law, whereas Jesus Christ obeyed God's law. He was defined by his obedience. And then what are the results for those who are under the headship of Adam versus those who are under the headship of Christ? Well, the results for those who are in Adam are judgment through condemnation as opposed to those who are in Christ. They're blessed with the free gift of justification. Those in Adam are made sinners, while those who are in Christ are made righteous. And those who are in Adam receive death, while those who are in Christ receive eternal life. And so I thought this was a helpful way of looking at that headship. Um, you know, and Beale draws all of this out in his book, but the point he's making is uh, you can see even more ironies in that the ways in which Adam failed and the results of Adam's failure are reversed in Christ's obedience and the results for those who are in Christ. So, um, you know, having talked about the obedience to God's law, this brings us to our next irony of salvation, which is that God's law condemns those who would seek to be saved by keeping it. Right? Um, Now, if you are here last week, Pastor Wright um, taught on chapter 4 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, uh, particularly on the uh, the second and third paragraph of chapter 4, and uh, he was covering the topics of God's law and the covenants of work and grace. And in his presentation, he reminded us of um, some key points about the moral law of God. And those are worth restating here because it's relevant to Beale's discussion in the book. Um, These key facts about the moral law of God are that the moral law of God flows out from God's own righteous character. Um, It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. It has always applied to all people, right? We just read death reigned from Adam to Moses. God's moral law has always applied even before given, being given as the Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Law. Um, and it's also written on the hearts of all people. And so, you know, we talked about all of these things. Uh, we also talked uh, last week about the fact that we, as fallen sinners in Adam, are by nature sinful and in rebellion against God. And even when we are regenerate, even when God grants us repentance and faith, that indwelling sin still remains in this lifetime. 
so that even though we've, um, we who have been saved are able to respond to God in obedience, we still have that sin that continues to cling to us, and so we still struggle with sin on a daily basis, and none of us can ever keep God's law perfectly. So even though God is so gracious in sanctifying us and helping us to better keep his law, we still all fall very short every day of actually being able to keep it. You know, uh, Romans chapter 3, where Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one, still applies to us when to our own righteousness, right? We cannot be made righteous by keeping God's law. Um, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ who did keep God's law, and we receive his righteousness. But all of this to say, um, this gets to the point that Beale's making here. Um, you know, the point that Beale's making is that Israel was given God's law in the Mosaic law, and God's law was meant to show them their complete and utter inability to ever be justified by keeping it. It was supposed to remind them daily of their sin and their need for a Savior, and it was supposed to bring them back to God in repentance and faith each day as they looked to this perfect law and realized we could never even come close to keeping this. But the irony is, Israel looked at that law, and that's not what they took away from it. What they took away from it was, oh, here's a law. We can keep it, and this is how we will be saved. You know, we can atone for our sins through these sacrifices that we're making each day. We can make ourselves right with the Lord if we keep his law. And, you know, that introduces the irony there, that they completely miss the purpose of what God's law was given for. Uh, Beale reminds us of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, or 10 through 12, where Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So notice what Paul says there. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. If anyone is guilty of even one transgression, they are guilty of transgressing the entire law, as we know uh, scripture says. And so, uh, you know, in Galatians, as you um, may remember Paul's addressing the Judaizers who were coming in and saying, yes, you need to have faith in Christ, but you also need to keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And Paul is making the point that you can't mix those two. It doesn't work, and it's not what God has taught. Um, no one is justified by keeping the law because no one can keep the law. And Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. Where he says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So again, the irony here is that Israel thought they would be saved by keeping this law instead of truly understanding that it was given to them to show them that they never could be saved by keeping it, that there needed to be someone else 
who would save them, someone else who could keep that law on their behalf. And in that comes the next irony, in that all of us who are saved are saved by keeping the law. It's just that we're not saved by our own keeping of the law. We're saved by Jesus Christ's keeping of the law and his perfect obedience that he has given to us as a free gift um, through his death and resurrection. So you, you actually have yet another double irony there where ultimately we are saved by the keeping of the law, but it's not our keeping of it. It's Jesus' keeping of the law that has accomplished righteousness and provided that righteousness for us. As it says in 2 Corinthians um, 5, chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, who walked in perfect obedience to God's law and knew no sin, he, as a result, was able to take upon himself God's wrath that was due for our sin. Right? It says that he knew no sin, He never sinned himself. He was perfectly righteous, but God made him to be sin. God put the curse of wrath that was due for the sins of his people on Christ. And at the same time, those people were given the righteousness of Christ. We see just in that short verse that concept of double imputation that we talk about, how in Christ's death and resurrection are sins are imputed to Christ, charged to his account, and then paid for in full, whereas his righteousness is credited to our account so that we now are considered or counted righteous by God before God. It's just a a beautiful truth that we see in Scripture. And so uh, we move on now to the next irony that Bill points out, which is that Jesus, in saving his people, has defeated death by dying. So first, in that section of the chapter, Beal takes us back to Psalm 8 um, and reminds us of what God has said there about how God uses weak men to glorify himself, how he uses man, you know, who who is weak to show forth his glory in his creation. And then, you know, shortly after that, Beale takes us to Hebrews chapter 2, where the writer of Hebrews applies that psalm specifically to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, right? And this is all relevant because as we read through um, Hebrews chapter 2, and we keep this theme in mind of uh, God using weakness to show his strength, God using apparent uh, apparent defeat to, sh- to bring forth victory, Uh, This becomes very clear for us as we uh, look there. So we'll read through um, verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2 in Hebrews, and this is where we see uh, the writer applying Psalm 8 to Jesus Christ. Uh, There we read, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is just massive, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, because he's describing this fundamental change to the Godhead that occurred at the incarnation of Christ, right? Christ, prior to the incarnation, uh, has a divine nature, but after the incarnation has both a divine nature and a human nature. This is a change to the Godhead, and it has huge impacts, right? Um, We see that uh, he took on flesh, he took on a human nature, and he even tasted death. And as a result, he was crowned with glory and honor. Now, why would, why would God need to condescend in this way? Why would the Son need to condescend by coming and taking on human flesh? Let's keep reading through the next few verses here, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So look closely at what the writer says here. Jesus took on human flesh. He became like his brothers and sisters in the flesh, so that through dying... He destroys Satan, and he sets his brothers and sisters free from slavery to sin and death, from slavery to the fear of death, because he has purchased and granted to them eternal life. This is just amazing. Um, Christian, you don't have to be afraid of death. You no longer have to be afraid of it, because Jesus has already died and took upon himself God's wrath due for your sin. You don't... You're not a slave to sin and righteousness anymore. You've been set free by Christ to follow Christ and to walk in righteousness. You don't have to be afraid of Satan. Jesus has destroyed him and his power of death. Satan has no dominion over you. You've been bought by Christ at the price of his blood. You belong to him. This is great reason for hope. We don't need to fear And of course, we're not only saved by his death, but we're saved by his resurrection. And now, this again shows us an irony. It's through death that Christ destroys death and the one who has the power of death. And why is it so important? Why is it um, such a good thing for us to, to do what Beale's been doing here and to see these ironies? What do we learn from this? What's the point? Well, what we learn from this, what we see is that God truly is sovereign in the salvation of his people. 
these ironies, these teachings, they completely put the lie to any type of doctrine that would say that God is not entirely and completely sovereign over the salvation of his people. If God's not sovereign in directing all of these events in saving his people, then sending the Son of Man to take on flesh to become a mortal human doesn't make a lot of sense as a strategy. You know, for us in our limited wisdom, you know, we would look at that and think, why, why would you do that? If you are looking to defeat Satan, why do you then send the Son of God to become a human, to become a, a human babe in flesh, and mortal flesh? You know, this seems like a bad idea. But of course, it's not a bad idea because God knows exactly what he's doing. And he's working it all out in accordance with his plan. Uh, the members of the Trinity know exactly what their roles are. They know exactly what they're going to do. It's not as if God is sending Jesus saying, you know, best of luck, you know, with, with this. Hope it goes well. Um, that's not it at all. God is completely sovereign. And you know, we see that in all of these ironies and the way that God has uh, brought about the salvation of his people in such ironic ways that we can't miss it. We can't miss the fact that he had all of this planned out and that he worked everything in accordance to his plan and for his glory. It brings him all the more glory when we see just the magnificent ways that he's worked. They're you know, so far beyond our wisdom, so far beyond what we would ever think to do. And so that brings us to the last irony that Beal has pointed out here that I'm... Uh, I'm uh, covering with everyone today, and that is that the Son of Man is lifted up as a curse and blesses those who have faith in him. So, in this section, Beale starts off by making the connection that Jesus makes between his own sacrificial death and resurrection and the serpent on the pole that Moses raises up in the wilderness uh, for the Israelites. Um, as we read in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whomever believes in him may have eternal life. Of course, Jesus here is referring to the events that we see captured in, number, or in um, Numbers chapter 21, uh, where the, God sends the fiery serpents among his people Israel after they've been grumbling against God after they've been ungrateful for God's provision in the wilderness, uh, he sends among them these fiery serpents. And in the midst of this punishment in which many died, the people go to Moses and they ask Moses to pray to the Lord on their behalf to, to save them from these serpents that have been sent among them. And in verses 8 and 9, we see the Lord's response. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, Beale points out a couple of particular ironies that we can draw from this particular passage. And here, when we look at the ironies, that actually helps us to better understand the application that Jesus is making in the Gospel of John, why he's, you know, applying this event 
this lifting up of the serpent on the pole to his ultimate uh, you know, being lifted up on the cross. <clears throat> One of those ironies is that the Israelites were to be saved by looking in faith to a symbol of God's judgment on sin. In fact, they were saved by looking to a symbol of the very thing that was causing their suffering, right? This serpent that Moses put on a pole and held up in front of them. This reminded Israel of God's sovereignty in both bringing them suffering due to their sin and also blessing due to their faith. The second irony that Beale points out is that what was a symbol of the curse of death, this figure of a serpent on a pole, ultimately produced the blessing of life for the Israelites when they looked to it in faith. And so when we understand those ironies, it makes it a little easier for us to understand what Christ is saying when he applies this to his own uh, death and resurrection. Like the Israelites, we're saved by looking in faith to the cross, which is a symbol of God's judgment on sin. And likewise, the cross was a symbol of the curse of death, but Jesus' sacrifice on it ultimately produces the blessing of life for those who look to Jesus in faith. So by understanding these ironies, we understand what Christ meant. He applied this to himself. Uh, Beale sums this up particularly by saying, just as the Israelites looked to a symbol of the curse of death and believed that God, who brought about the curse of death, could also bring about the blessing of life, Christians look to the cross with faith that God, who rightly punishes sin, will also bless his elect with forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And then the last point that Buell makes here is that Christ has removed the curse of death from us by becoming a curse for us. So if we go back to Galatians chapter 3, um, we see Paul make this point in verses 13 and 14. There, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here again, Paul talks about that imputation of our sin to Christ and his taking upon himself the wrath of God due for our sin. He's referring here, Paul is, to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. There we read, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So how does this draw out more ironies for us? Well, looking there at Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 21, according to Old Testament law, for the worst types of crimes, those punishable by death, the punishment might involve also hanging on a tree. This indicated the severity of the crime. And as the Lord has said, a hanged man is cursed by God. So anyone, you know, hanging like that, people would see it and know that they had committed one of the worst types of crimes you could commit. When Jesus was crucified on a cross, he was in effect hung on a tree. And he was demonstrated to be a cursed man. He was. 
And in fact, many of the first century Jews who did not believe in Jesus would have believed that he deserved such a curse for having blasphemed against God, for having made himself out to be equal with God. And so they would have seen him hanging on a tree as a cursed man and thought, this is right, this is what he deserved. However, as we've talked about, ironically, this symbol of a curse was reversed and became a symbol of life. And now we look to the cross with joy, not as a symbol of a curse, but as a symbol of Christ, the one who has purchased eternal life for us. This salvation by grace through faith in a Savior who took upon himself the curse of death, who became a curse and was resurrected to life, this was a stumbling block for the Jews. Right? They, couldn't get over, they couldn't get past that. They saw it only as a curse. And they saw Jesus only as a blasphemer who died, who died a blasphemer's death. But ironically, this salvation by grace through faith in Christ has become the cornerstone for the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles. And it's the foundation of Jesus' perfect obedience to God's law, his perfect obedience even unto death, and his perfect and complete salvation of his people. This is the cornerstone of the church. Jesus has set us free from slavery to sin and death, and he's granted us eternal life. So again, we see you know, yet another irony that what appeared to be a curse truly was a symbol of life. All right, well, that is our lesson for today.